Good evening, listeners. Today is August 26th. You are tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis, currently just after 7 p.m., and it's Sunday night, so that means it's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Scott Classic. And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our upcoming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. So this show is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of us or our guests, and those do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. So tonight we are joined by Hannah Rolston, who is a fifth-year PhD student in environmental engineering. Hi, Hannah. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Um, So can you tell us, uh, get into what it is that uh, you do? You do some cool research here. Yeah, um, yeah. Like, um, like you said, I'm in the environmental engineering department, and I do bioremediation research. So I research how we can use microorganisms to clean up um, pollutants in groundwater. Hmm, that's really cool. So in groundwater, I guess maybe we should just kind of set the stage for our listeners. There's water traveling below the ground that isn't necessarily in a river yet, right? Yeah, exactly. Going Um, deep enough and there's going to be water there. Yeah, there's really small spaces in between grains of sand or gravel or whatever your um, subsurface material is, and that can be filled by water, and it's a really important uh, resource, water resource for us that, um, I mean, we use pretty widely. Uh, (laughs) We can only only survive, what, like two days without water? So (laughs) we kind of need it. We definitely need water, um, and we're... In around um, this part of the world, in the Pacific Northwest, we use a lot of surface water, but in lots of other parts of the country and the world, groundwater is their primary water resource. So thinking about the United States, because this is kind of where your research focuses, although I think, as the listeners will find out, it really applies almost anywhere. Um, but we have a lot of contaminated sites here in the United States that could use some help, whether it's you know, our current remediation techniques or some bioremediation techniques. So tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of the scale and scope of the problem. Yeah. So, um, so I, the contaminants that I research are um, chlorinated solvents or industrial degreasers um, and then, and some of their co-contaminants. And those contaminants alone are present at thousands of sites, sites in the United States alone. And I don't know about the rest of the world, but, um, in throughout the 20th century, we used these chlorinated solvents for degreasing pretty much ubiquitously in manufacturing, and then um, for like at a lot of military sites as well to um, degrease vehicles, um, to do service on on airplanes, on um, on Humvees, any of those you know big military vehicles that you see, they need to come into the shop, um, and we need to remove the grease um, or they needed to remove their grease from various parts, and to do that, they use these chlorinated solvents. Um, and but prior to the enactment of the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act in 1980, there were very few regulations on the disposal of these waste solvents, and as a result, we have um, contamination throughout the United States. So either due to like negligence or 
people like just dumping them somewhere. That's how it gets into the groundwater. Yeah, and I'm hesitant to say negligence because it's not like someone was breaking the law necessarily. Um, right, because there wasn't even a law. Because there wasn't be a law. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. So you could, I mean, some some of the instructions on the material safety data sheets, which is like um, a set of a description of how um, of a chemical that um, that's provided with any sort of chemical, and it tells you know whether or not it's toxic, all that stuff. And some of the descriptions for these solvents were like, well, after you're done, you can land apply them. And um, and they'll volatilize or evaporate, and um, that's true. Some of them will evaporate, but we also had a bunch that um, leached into the ground and the groundwater. Um, we also had a like much less stringent regulation on our landfills prior to the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act. So a lot of them were clay lined landfills, which is not necessarily not necessarily going to keep everything inside the landfill. So even though um, all these um, industrial sites may have been following the rules, quote unquote, um, it, those rules weren't sufficient to protect um, the groundwater. I see. And then so that's how you end up with like these plumes of chemicals in the groundwater that can be like, what, miles long? Yeah, potentially. Um, it depends. Each site is different. So it depends on um, the subsurface physics and geochemistry. Um, but like you said, Scott, earlier, um, groundwater moves. So what could be chemicals could be released at one point, And um, while groundwater is certainly flowing much more slowly than like a river, um, there is movement. And so a little bit of contamination at one point um, will be carried away from the source zone and, um, and exactly can result in plumes that are potentially miles long. So a lot of these kinds of issues started following the Industrial Revolution and then really became ubiquitous, but we didn't find out about them until much later. And I think now the way it sounds from your description, we're finding out not only how bad the issue is, but also where the issue is in terms of you know space and time. So we're kind of dealing with what happened in the past now. And now your research in particular has some really cool ways to deal with you know these types of contaminants that are uh, you know kind of leaking into the groundwater that we need. Yeah. Um, so, um, as part of the environmental movement, you know, we've found out about a lot of the existing contamination. And so some of our knowledge of the, um, the chlorinated solvents is now um, many decades old. And so we've developed some strategies to remediate that contamination. But the more we learn about, um, about pollution in general, the more specific um, different kinds of pollutants we find. And so not only do I look at chlorinated solvents, but my real focus um, and the reason that all this research is funded is because of this other contaminant that has emerged as a co-contaminant of the chlorinated solvents, and that's called 1,4-dioxane. And that was used as a stabilizer for one of the chlorinated solvents. So when the chlorinated solvents were released into the ground, 1,4-dioxane accompanied it. But until relatively recently, we didn't know it was out there. So at a lot of sites... um, you know, we might have been treating chlorinated solvents um, and had no idea that the 1,4-dioxane was also present in the groundwater. And again, um, well, and that presents a challenge because, um, so 1,4-dioxane was a stabilizer for a chlorinated solvent, so that means it's um, chemically, it behaves really differently than the chlorinated solvent itself. So our remediation strategy um, for the chlorinated solvents is not necessarily working for the 1,4-dioxane. Interesting. So, so like even if like our objective is to, you know, we ha- or we have found this site, we know it's contaminated with chlorinated solvents from the past. We have a specific technique to get rid of the chlorinated solvents and hooray, it's working, you know, five years later, 10 years later, you know, the chlorinated solvent concentration is much, much lower. 
but the kind of uh, the one four dioxane or um, like a, a co co contaminant is does not behave the same way. So the remediation strategy simply does not work. So you're still left with a, a polluted area. Yeah, exactly. So the conventional treatment um, strategy for chlorinated solvents is you pump the dirty water out of the um, out of the subsurface. You pump it to the surface and then you treat it either by volatilizing the solvents from the groundwater. Um, so they just like get dissolved into the air and they, then they yeah. float away. Yep. They or have. do they get degraded in the atmosphere? So usually we um, they sort of degrade in the atmosphere, but in these you know nicely regulated engineering systems um, or engineered remediation systems, um, we would use air to force to um, to force the solvents to evaporate from the water, um, and then that dirty air would be trapped and uh, trapped on carbon, um, usually uh, activated carbon. Um, and these chlorinated solvents are also, um, we call them sort of sticky chemically, and so they can stick to um, to carbon as well. Um, so that strategy works pretty well for chlorinated solvents, but 1,4-doxane is, um, is really, really soluble, so it likes to stay in the water phase. So the volatilization or the absorption to activated carbon is just not going to do anything for the 1,4-doxane. So we call these pump-and-treat systems where we're you know pumping water out, treating it, and then usually you can pump the clean water back into the ground. So at some of these sites, you know, there's a potential that we've been running them for decades at this point and treating these chlorinated solvents, and because we didn't know to look for the 1,4-doxane, we're maybe pumping some of that back into the ground. I see. And uh, the 1,4-dioxane, um, that's that's kind of a nasty chemical, right? That's a potential carcinogen, right? Yep. Yeah, just like the chlorinated solvents themselves. Yeah, yeah so we don't want it in the quote-unquote clean water we're putting back in the ground. Okay. Um, what are some other remediation strategies that are currently utilized? Yeah, so um, there's... You had a really funny name, uh, a, a haul and dump, or oh yeah, a dig and haul, a dig and um, haul. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's one of those things that, as a as a grad student, I'm doing this bioremediation work, looking at microbes, and so I think about that all the time. And then I go to these conferences with other um, engineers who are working on multiple sites, and you know have had these um, decades long careers working on sites. And I'm super excited about bioremediation and all these like fancy new remediation technologies. And they say, yeah, yeah, that's great and all. But most of our remediation is still dig and haul, which means you dig up contaminated sediment usually and just haul it off to some sort of regulated landfill, um, which is just moving the problem around. Um, but potentially or hopefully making um, the original site safer for who is ever around, um, whatever people are around there. But, yeah, it's not it's not a destructive remediation technology. So if the contamination is not destroyed. It's just moved somewhere else. So this field, you'd say, is probably in its infancy? Um, I would hesitate to say infancy because um, people like my advisor have been working on um, bioremediation strategies for um, their entire careers at this point and have made some really interesting progress, but it's not used um, as widely as I think it will be in industry. Okay, so it's more like within the research community, it's something that's... Yeah, and um, at, and it's being used more and more in industry, and regulators are becoming um, more and more um, keen to allow it to be used at sites. But the advantage of something like dig and haul is if you dig it up and haul it away, you know it's gone. You know your problem's gone. Whereas if you're trying to get these potentially finicky microbes to do your bidding, um, 
it, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, and you know, hopefully we're understanding more and more about um, when it wouldn't work um, and versus when it would. But um, each site is different. Um, there's lots of complications um, out there in the real world of remediation. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you mentioned the microbes. I was just going to ask you, what, what, where does the bio and the bioremediation come in? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well. Um, I mean, the cool thing about microbes and bacteria specifically is they're everywhere and they're really opportunistic. And so um, microbes eat a lot of different things. And so as engineers, we can um, sort of force them to to eat or metabolize um, what we want them to. And so um, there's a couple different approaches to bioremediation. Sometimes um, you get microorganisms that will directly consume the contaminants. They use them as carbon and energy sources. It allows them to grow um, bigger microbial populations. Um, that works really well for some of the chlorinated solvents. Um, for 1,4-doxane, that doesn't work quite as well. There are some microorganisms that do um, directly consume 1,4-doxane, but they're kind of slow-growing. Um, and most of our 1,4-doxane concentrations in the environment are actually um, pretty low. Um, so they're still high enough that they're uh, threats to human health. We don't want them in our drinking water, um, but they're not high enough to sustain um, or to sustain a microbial community for a microbial community to live on. Um, so um, because that's the case, we're approaching the problem through co-metabolism which means we feed our microorganisms some sort of food source that they really like, um, and that is their carbon and energy source that allows them to grow. Um, but in order to, um, to consume that carbon source, they express this enzyme that we say is nonspecific, so it also transforms um, other compounds, and in our case, other compounds would be 1,4-doxane and some of the chlorinated solvents as well. And so that's really useful because if they're not using the 1,4-doxane for food, it means this sort of side reaction that we trick them into doing can happen at really low concentrations. That's really cool. And then um, I guess we should clarify that these are these are just like microbes hanging out in the soils, in like exposed to the groundwater uh, naturally. Yep. These are these are not you know GMOs. These are not uh, in microbes grown in a lab and then sent down into the groundwater. They're just totally natural. Yep. Yeah. I've um, shown from research using soil samples from a couple different sites that, yeah, we can um, provide this um, type of food that our microbes like to whatever is in the soil sample. And there's, you know, usually a huge diversity of microorganisms in a given soil sample. Um, but from however many are there, we can usually grow up a population that does these transformations for us. Um, we can also grow up microorganisms in the lab and inject those into the subsurface as well. Um, there's been lots of work done with that, and that's you know it's done um, in in industry as well. But if you can just only put one thing in the subsurface, like the food, um, that's easier. So, so I've I've thought about a, a fun analogy. At least to me, it's fun. You might find this really disgraceful, <laughs> Hannah. Um, but for uh, for a co-metabolism analogy, is I'm thinking like if my main food source is hot wings. And, you know, after a while, I need some celery to cool down the hotness. That celery is like that, you know, the 1,4-dioxane. The like, I'm not going to eat, I'm not going to live off of celery. But if I'm eating all my hot wings, I'm going to want some celery and probably some ranch, too. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, I sort of like that analogy, but I wouldn't say that you the microbes want to eat these other things. It can actually be detrimental to them. So it's sort of like if you accidentally ate some celery. The microbes it's not are a just choice. Like grabbing whatever's around. They're grabbing whatever's they're around. Probably yeah. some carrots. If I reach for the celery, I accidentally <laughs> grab a carrot in the mix. Yeah, yeah. I like just... to say it's like eating a slice of watermelon, and you're so excited to eat watermelon that you may just swallow some seeds along the way and not know about it. But, you know, it happens. That's a much better analogy. <laughs> I don't know. Hot wings are fun, though. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was actually also uh, trying to think of like a food-related analogy, but I think yours is better. I like, and yours is the best. Yeah. I like watermelon. <laughs> I like watermelon a lot. Okay, so, yeah. so you mentioned something that um, with, the, with the microbial world, it's intrinsically very complicated. So tell us a little bit about maybe some of the limitations, but um, also in what situations you found where uh, you know, this kind of reme remediation technique really works well. Yeah. So I, you know, I don't have a lot of field experience. Um, I have some, but I don't have a, um, a wide range of field experience experience, but, um, it is more complicated, um, than just making sure the food is there. Um, this is a process that requires oxygen too. So we have to make sure our microbes have enough oxygen and one thing that I found out in the first couple years of my research is um, our microbes need other types of nutrients, too. So nitrogen and phosphorus are big nutrients that we look at um, in microbiology, but there can be a lot of trace metals and other micronutrients that are important in the process, too. So if you don't have all of those things present, um, then, I mean, you could be giving your microorganisms, microorganisms plenty of food and oxygen, but if you're not giving them nutrients, they're going to slow down and, um, and stop working for you. Um, I mean, another their site level issues are more like um, what is transport like in the subsurface? So do you have a sandy aquifer where water and microorganisms and these nutrients that we supply are able to move out into the aquifer pretty well? Or is your aquifer um, made up of a clay matrix? Then things are going to be really difficult to transport away from the wells where you would inject all of these things into the subsurface. Um, there could be competing microorganisms. Um, at some sites, the level of contamination is really high. Um, and some of these chlorinated solvents that I mentioned previously are really toxic to our micro, uh, microorganisms. And, um, and that's actually because of their ability to do co-metabolism. And so that's why I say they're not, they're not choosing to eat these other things. <laughs> it's happening by accident and can actually be detrimental to them. So one of the chlorinated solvents is 1,1-dichloroethane. That um, just means a couple couple chlorines on a couple carbons um, with a double bond. And so our microbes are, when we grow them up on um, our food source, which is isobutane, they are really able to transform this 1,1-dichloroethene, but um, they but they form this toxic product in the, in the transformation. And so by doing this co-metabolic transformation, they're sort of killing themselves in the process. Just a little bit. Um, yeah, that's unfortunate. Sad and makes me, yeah, not feel like a great person when I trick <laughs> the microbes into killing themselves. <laughs> so if there's a bunch of this chemical around at a site, um, it's going to be really challenging for uh, for us to use my um, exact approach with uh, the specific food source that I research um, or the specific microorganism. But my lab is looking at a variety of different food sources um, and different types of microorganisms as well. So this sort of mixed combined or mixed treatment approach approach is um is something that's really important in industry yeah 
And so uh, you guys, you guys have identified, or correct me if I'm wrong. There's an enzyme that the microbes naturally will express when you give them the um, isobutane, mm-hmm. and they can really um, work pretty well in reducing the uh, 1,4-dioxane, right? Yeah. So when we f- when I feed my microorganisms isobutane, um, they are expressing a monooxygenase enzyme, uh, specifically most likely an isobutane monooxygenase enzyme. There are lots of different types of monooxygenase enzymes. But yeah, when um, when I feed my microbes isobutane, they express this enzyme, and 1,4-doxane is degraded really well. Um, it does 1,4-doxane does not have toxic effects on our microorganisms, or if it does, they're really, really minimal. So our microbes can degrade a lot of 1,4-doxane. Um, in the process. And it's pretty neat because um, some of my preliminary work has shown that we see 100% recovery of the 1,4-doxane as carbon dioxide, which is a great result um, in the groundwater remediation world. CO2 is uh, what we want to see because it's not toxic. So that just totally eliminated all of the 1,4-dioxane. It yep. all got turned into carbon dioxide. Yep, exactly. Wow. Yeah, and we're able to see it go um, to transform 1,4-doxane down below. Um, the, the EPA has released a um, one-in-a-million lifetime cancer risk uh, level for 1,4-doxane, and it's really low. It's 0.35 micrograms per liter or parts per billion. Um, which is tiny. Which is low, yeah, definitely. And um, and so that's it's harder to transform low concentrations of contaminants, so it's pretty exciting that we can see it get down to those levels. Wow. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Inspiration Dissemination on 88.7 KBVR. We are speaking to Hannah Rolston, who just really gave us some really good news on her work with bioremediation techniques in contaminated areas with specifically 1,4-dioxane and how it kind of connects to chlorinated solvents in our past history of of how we used all these things in the past. Um, So I am curious now how you kind of came into this field of of microbiology uh, in in the, like, uh, contamination realm, because I don't imagine you were, you know, playing with Legos and thinking to myself, hey, I want to find out where all these military installations are and clean them up. <laughs> That's a Lego kit they didn't uh, ever they, release. They didn't really re- release. Okay. But maybe yeah. coming soon. I mean, <laughs> can hope. remediation for children. Um, no, I was, I was definitely not a... Um, even a Lego kid at all growing up. Um, but I, um, as an undergraduate student, I was in a civil program with a specialization in environmental engineering. And then the very last class of my last quarter of undergrad, I took a hazardous waste management course and like learned about clearly waste management in general, but specifically things like bioremediation and thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever heard of. Um, but then went to work for a little while, um, and, um, when that became a little bit boring, decided I was going to do grad school and uh, and knew I wanted to work in, in bioremediation. Can I ask you to take even a step further back in history? Because I think you have a really interesting path to even finding civil engineering in the first place. Sure, yeah. So I said I wasn't a STEM kid or a Lego kid or a science math kid really at all growing up. So um, I guess if you if you asked... 
16-year-old Hannah what she thought she'd be doing when um, she was this age, which I guess I won't say, um, she would have said, oh, you'll be a diplomat, like um, working in the Foreign Service. Um, I was really interested in international relations, and so that was actually my declared major when I started undergrad, my undergrad degree. Um, and But I did some coursework my first year that was a lot of... Um, like history, philosophy, literature, um, it was like ancient stuff. And I was kind of thinking, wow, this is really cool that I'm learning this stuff, but I don't feel like I'm really learning how to do anything or um, or have any sort of applicable skills. And I can kind of read about this stuff whenever I want. So I should take this opportunity in college and learn how to do something. And I was like, okay, what does that mean? Well, I guess engineers do things. Um, maybe I'll become an engineer. And I don't I didn't really know any engineers or anything like that. But I was like, okay, well, you know, my Seattle University, they have an engineering program. What kind of engineer do I want to be? Well, I guess I'll be an environmental engineer because I think of myself as an environmentalist. And so I just switched and I didn't even really know anything about environmental engineering. You just dove right in. I just dove right in. I was, yeah, I mean, I was really excited about um, like humanitarian engineering potentially. Um, and But I had no idea that like, bread and butter environmental engineering is like drinking water treatment, wastewater treatment and end remediation. It was just kind of like, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to learn to do some stuff. And and I did. And I'm really excited that it worked out really well because um, I definitely, you know, see myself as more of a STEM person now. And I'm really excited by the science of um, of the stuff that I research, as well as its applications to you know actually do stuff um, for the world. <laughs> It's really cool. So um, I just wanted to ask you, like, what's the next step in terms of getting back to your research, like, really quickly? Yeah. Um, so next steps for me, I probably got a year and a half left, approximately. should never estimate. Um, but uh, <laughs> I've got some amount of time left on my PhD. And so I've done some field tests um, here at OSU. Actually, we have some test wells. No one four oxane in the ground. Don't worry about that. But uh, we do have some wells where I can do some tests. Um, so I'll continue those a little bit. Um, I also look at mixtures, really um, focusing on the mixtures of contamination. So when we have some of those potentially um, toxic to our microbes, chlorinated solvents, and the one fordoxane present together. Um, and I also do some modeling. So to finish up my PhD, I'll, I'll keep working on all of that. Um, when I'm done, I would like to work as a consulting engineer, I think. Um, my work experience in between undergrad and grad school was doing compliance engineering, so I don't have that hands-on experience of um, designing a remediation strategy for a specific site, and I would like to get that experience. Um, but... I'm only willing to say that, you know, that's my plan for the five years or so out of um, out of grad school. And then we'll see what how my perspective has changed after that. I'd like to revisit a decision you made in your undergrad. After your first year, you decided to switch majors. Um, as I'm around campus more and more, I see more and more undergraduates that are coming here to Corvallis and like starting I'm starting to see a lot more undergrads in general. So I'm, I'm ready. Yeah, actually. Wow. Yeah, I've um, seen a lot more undergrads already. Um, anyways, <laughs> I, I bike by a lot of dorms to get to my building. Uh, um, oh, so, yeah. like, I see a lot more activity in the last, like, two weeks of, like, people living in, in the rooms. Um, so so I, I imagine there are some undergrads who are really jazzed on major XYZ that they have picked out. And I'm, I'm curious to hear from you uh, how you made the decision to actually be comfortable with completely switching majors, even though you pretty you realized pretty early on it was only a year in. But, you know, do you have any um, 
can you like get me into your mind of how you decided like yep whatever i'm switch yeah (laughs) i mean college is this like really exciting time where you can make a switch like that so um there's i guess you know you're gonna take a bunch of gen ed courses for whatever sort of program you're in and then um let's see so like early on for me i mean it definitely set me back a little bit i did some extra time because of it but it's just like what a beautiful opportunity to really switch course um really switch courses and it i also looking back i mean i was sure that i was like (laughs) into this international studies thing and i was um yeah just really gung-ho about it but after you know i started having these nagging feelings of is this really what i want to do and so i mean i don't know how to not be afraid of it but um yeah i mean just like taking take those opportunities when you have them to do something different because I mean, you could switch back, but, you know, take an engineering course or, you know, if you're registered as an engineering student, maybe take an econ course or an international development course, something like that. I mean, college is a really exciting time to explore new things. And I mean, what you think you want when you're 16 or 18 is that's great to have ideas and to be, you know, to passionately pursue whatever it is you think you want. But there's a lot of things in life that are going to change, you know, by the time you finish college or, you know get a couple years into your career or whatever and so um so i wouldn't necessarily be af- afraid of of changing who you are i mean this is the time to do it well let's also be clear you wanted to go into the the foreign service and the diplomatic realm because you wanted to help people yeah right? like that was kind of your driving force so here i mean you're still helping people because you're figuring out how to clean up our most precious resource which is water so i mean i think as long as you have that drive and motivation however you can apply it seems like you did it very effectively yeah i mean there thank you Uh, (laughs) uh, there are so many things that you could do with your life and so there's not one best thing that you know you should be doing and if you're not doing that then like oh you're just like you know, failing in some way and you might as well like try option number two or something. No, like there are so many different ways that we can like contribute and participate in um, like improving life in whatever way, shape or form. And so I feel like do something that also like that ignites your passion in many, many different ways. And so and college is a great time to explore that. I think that's great advice, especially, I mean, you know, time to change whatever your routine is try something new, and even fail at something. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think (laughs) I probably could have done okay in my international studies track, and I hadn't taken a math class in a couple years, and it's like, no, no, I'm going to do this. And I used a math tutor my first quarter on my engineering track, and I needed them. And um, But it was was also fun to switch courses. And so, um, yeah, it worked out well for me. Cool. So um, I guess we got a sort of a new tradition here uh, at Inspiration Dissemination, which is um, we want to know, like, what, what do you do in your uh, free time when you're not uh, studying bioremediation? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, well, I really like living in Corvallis um, because of its access to the outdoors. So I um, got into road biking since I've um, been in grad school. So I went on a nice bike ride today. Um, you wore your helmet, right? I always wear my helmet. Always That's wear good. your helmet. Yeah. I don't ride with people who don't wear helmets. You wear so light when just, it's dark. <laughs> yeah, lights, definitely. Um, 
You're so, investing a lot of money in that noggin. So yeah, exactly. All you undergrads, there's a lot of money going into that noggin. Don't mess it up. <laughs> right, Wear a helmet. Right. And grad students too. I know plenty Definitely. of you who don't. So um, we're watching. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I'll yell at you. I mean, I just do. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so the biking has been fun. Um, I mean, getting up into the mountains is always great, too. It's been a nice summer to um, to do some backpacking before the smoke settled in. Um, I also have really enjoyed being at this big university. My undergrad institution was pretty small, so there's so much going on here. Um, we have this great craft center on campus, so I've been doing ceramics there. And there's just so much going on in terms of, like, lectures and film screenings and I mean it's like any day of the week you could pick between you know three to ten things that are going on so it's really nice to um to be in a place where I can not only teach myself about you know engineering and remediation but um you know go to a talk on you know water use on the Nile too if I want and and sort of um continue to feed that um international relations um <laughs> interest that I have so that's another good piece of advice too. It's like we've got really impressive people coming by here and giving had, talks. And you had mentioned OSU Today is a really good uh, resource to find out what's going on for the week, whether it's a talk or a play or a music ensemble or et cetera, yeah, et cetera. Um, yeah. During the school year, it comes out daily, and it's how I find out about whatever's going on. And I mean, being a student is awesome. Most of it is free. Even these like great musical performances, they have free tickets for students. So. I'm yeah, not looking forward to giving that up um, when the time comes. But yeah, I mean, the working world, I learned a lot there too. But to be on a university campus where all this different stuff is going on is just amazing. So I'm really trying to take advantage of that while I can. Another tradition we have is to ask you for advice. So what is your advice and whom is it for? Um, so... I've had a really great graduate student experience, which I'm very, very grateful for. And I think one of the things that has made it so good is um, we've been really intentional about creating community in my department. And it's hard because grad students are working all the time. People are kind of off in their own labs or with their head in their computer. Um, but working hard to like socialize with other people in your department um, or you know, get each other out every now and then um, and build community in sort of in many different ways has has been great for me. So I really encourage other graduate students to do that, um, especially in their first couple years, um, because it's I mean, it gets you uh, helps, you know, who you're working with. And, you know, there might be reasons to be competitive, but there's many more reasons to really work together. Um, and so that's really made my grad student experience positive. Very cool. And then our final tradition we have is, um, so we've asked you to choose a song to play out on. And uh, what song is that? Yeah, so I actually don't remember the title. You moment. Worry Me. You Worry Me by Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats. All right. Well, very cool. Thank you for uh, coming on, Hannah. Thanks, guys.